0: Our scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. This is found on page 739 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, please take one this morning. It is our gift to you. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you Susan. Well, good morning. My name is Anthony Emerson. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community Brookside. I too would like to welcome you if this is your first time with us. Uh, We're so glad that you are here. We have been walking through a sermon series in the Old Testament book of Daniel for the last couple weeks, looking at how we can live and even thrive in a world without control. And Daniel and his friends certainly lived in that kind of a world. They were exiled in Babylon. Um, And today, we come to a story involving three of Daniel's friends um, that's both familiar to some of us, but simultaneously, I think, unmind for what it can teach us. But before we get to that, uh, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word this morning. We ask that you would help us to be attentive to what you have to say to us. We pray that you would use this time to draw us closer to you. Would you get all the glory? Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you knew the right thing to do, but you had every reason to not do it? Have you ever been in a place where there seemed to be so much reward and so little consequence for fudging just a little on your values? One of my earliest memories is when I was maybe four or five years old and my mom told me to go take a nap one afternoon, and I did not want to take a nap that afternoon. I had energy, I wanted to play, and uh, so my my brilliant young mind, I concocted a foolproof plan to get out of this conundrum. I would go up into my room, pretend like I tried to take a nap, and then after a short period of time, I'd come back down say, Mom, I tried to take a nap but couldn't, um, or I, I took a nap and now I've woken up and I can't get back to sleep. So I did that, went up into my room, laid on my bed, stared at the ceiling, and for what seemed like forever, but I thought was this is a good enough time where she'll be appeased and satisfied that I've taken a nap, and now I woke up. So I go out of my room, go back downstairs, go to my mom, say, Mom, hey, I, I slept, but I just woke up. I guess uh, it's time for me to play again. Um, and she looks at me and she says, Anthony, it's been a total of three minutes. Um, that was an example of an opportunity to obey that I did not take, uh, where it cost me a little bit of something. Um, but there's much more serious examples of this sort of obedience where it's costly, um, where it hurts if it's, that opportunity is taken. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is an influential pastor and theologian in Germany during World War II. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer spoke out against the Nazis while he was there, was able to escape, came to New York, was in New York for a while, and could have stayed here um, safe and sound. His friends tried to persuade him to stay, wait out the war, wait till it's finished. But he decided that. God was calling him to go back, to be with his people, to suffer with them, to be with the people that he felt called to minister to. He had every reason to stay out of harm's way. He could have stayed in New York, lived a long life, made a huge impact on the world, pastored, written books, Uh, wrote a few books Uh, at that point. He was only 39 years old, but could have lived a lot longer, made a huge impact. But he felt called to go back. And he had faith in God, even if it came to the worst, even if God did not save him from death. He was caught and executed in 1945, a few days before the war ended. But he had what I want to call today, even if faith. Faith that even if God did not deliver him from that situation, God was still in control. Do we have that kind of faith? Because whether you do or not, we all face times where we're tested, where we have every incentive to not do the right thing, where we have every incentive to take the easy way out, to compromise. Where are you tempted in that regard? And in our society today, which is increasingly post-Christian, if you are a Christian, it would behoove you to be ready for this kind of a situation where being faithful will have its consequences. But regardless, if we're going to be faithful in anything other than ideal circumstances, that is, if we're going to be able to live life without control, if we're going to not be dominated by our circumstances, you and I need even-if faith. You and I need even-if faith. We'll go ahead and turn, if you have not already, to Daniel chapter 3. And the story we find in Daniel 3 this morning gives us a picture of what this even-if faith that we're talking about looks like. So we're going to see three qualities of this kind of faith, and then we'll look at some practical ways to grow into this kind of faith. So Daniel chapter 3. We pick up in in verse 1, and King Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the whole entire known world, is at it again. Last week, he threatened to murder every wise man in the kingdom if they couldn't interpret his dream. Uh, He's a bit off his rocker. He's a bit egotistical. But he's also a bit the most powerful man in the world. That makes him a bit dangerous. And he's built a huge idol of gold, that he wants everyone to worship. So it's 60 cubits high, that, that's about 90 feet tall. Um, for reference, our steeple here is about 90 feet tall. So imagine a statue, the size, the height of our steeple. Um, that's as big or bigger than just about everything, um, every statue, every idol that has existed to today from that uh, part of history. Um, So, um, imagine that statue, he's building this gigantic idol, why? To represent him and his empire and his power, and he's gathering everybody to submit to it, to submit to him. Now, to be clear, this was not a suggestion. King Nebuchadnezzar was not saying, hey, if you can slot this idol worship into your Saturday schedule, that'd be great. He's saying, come, bow down, and worship this image, or else. The punishment for refusing to bow down is becoming Babylonian barbecue. You're going to be thrown into this furnace. And he calls every government official from all the provinces of his empire to the dedication. He wants everyone there to worship his statue, to bow down to his power, to consolidate his kingdom right, because he is a smart emperor, all right, he knows that there's a huge diversity of people and tongues and nations represented. He's conquered everybody he can. He's gathering them together to consolidate his power. So the command goes out. When you hear the music play, just bow down and worship this image. No big deal. We're not asking much. You can keep your gods, You can keep your religion. Just bow down this one time to this idol. It's all you have to do. Show your loyalty. You get to be a part of this grand empire. with This one thing. It's a tiny request, but if you don't, we're going to burn you alive. Sure enough, the music starts, the great ceremony begins, and everybody goes through the motions. They bow down to this gold idol that King has built. Everything goes according to plan. Nebuchadnezzar is happy. His administrators are happy. Everyone's happy. But then some Chaldeans, some astrologers, people who work for the king, come up to King Neb. I'm going to call him King Neb from now on. Nebuchadnezzar is too many syllables for me. Uh, They tell him that these three guys, these three foreigners who he gave jobs to, had the audacity to not bow down. And they're intentionally appealing to King Neb's ego. They want to get these guys caught. So look at verse 8 with me. And notice the, the use of you, the second person plural here, as they, they stroke the king's ego to try and get him angry. So verse 8, the astrologer or it says, Therefore at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man shall fall down and worship the golden image. Skip to verse 12. They continue, There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. And quick side note, Daniel, who is the author of Daniel and the main figure throughout, does not show up in this chapter. Um, It's not clear why. It may be because he is in the king's inner circle now. He's part of the royal court, whereas this dedication is for provincial officials and for governors, but whatever the case, the plot against these three friends works. King Neb, who is the definition of a megalomaniac, goes crazy and calls in these these three rebels. He gives them the ultimatum to end all ultimatums. He says, bow down right now, right here in front of me, or you're going in the furnace right behind me. Your call, think this one through. Now, why is he so ticked off? Why is he so mad? It is not because the Jews are worshiping another god. He does not care. There are hundreds of religions and gods represented on this plane at this ceremony. There's hundreds of different kinds of people, all these different religions. King Neb isn't looking to persecute any particular faith. That's fine. You can worship who you want but you're not bowing down to mine, too. Babylon was a pluralistic society. He wasn't looking to persecute them. He was just looking for tolerance of all faiths, including his. He wanted everybody to get along in their diversity so it would be peace and his rule would be established. Some of this sounds familiar, doesn't it? I mean, we live in a pluralistic society today where... Every faith is to be tolerated, and no one faith is to be preferred or seen as more true than the others. Tolerance is a primary virtue in our culture. And tolerance amidst diversity is a good thing. As uh, believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're called to not just tolerate, but to love our enemies and pray for those who might persecute us, let alone tolerate those who just want to coexist with us. We need to be able to do that. But not to the point where there is no truth. Not to the point where we are no longer faithful. And those who follow Christ are sometimes called to be faithful to Him, even if it causes disruption. Even if it becomes offensive to others. Even if faith is offensive. It's offensive. I mean, people don't care on average, if you worship Jesus. People do care when you say, you need to worship Him too. People do care when you live out your faith and it clashes with their own interests. I think of the civil rights movement where the church led the way that angered a lot of people, it offended a lot of people because they were being faithful. We're called to faith even if it's offensive. Are you offensive? Not because you're a jerk about it, not because you're manipulative or pushy, but because you humbly yet confidently are faithful, even if it doesn't sit well with the surrounding culture, even if it's offensive. So, even if faith is offensive, but it's also costly, it's costly we'll see that in the second part of the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for their part, go ahead and up the ante. King Neb calls them in, gives them the ultimatum. They don't bat an eye. They don't hesitate. They don't deliberate. They have an answer ready. Let's read verse 15. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar speaking. And said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, in some translation it reads, even if he doesn't. This idea of even if not, be it known to you, O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They got some chutzpah. These are some bad dudes. I mean, they are cold. I mean, they are not speaking to a calculated, reasonable politician who they can sort of banter with and get out of the situation. They are speaking with an off-his-rocker, egotistical, all-powerful emperor who is currently flying off the handle with rage. And this is how they answer him. God can save us from the furnace. He is able. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to you or your gods. Notice this. This is at the heart of this text. They do not just have God will faith, which is what we most commonly think about when we think of faith and what we, what we want. God will bring me through. God will deliver me. And that's true and that's good as far as it goes. But we see here, these men go beyond that. They don't just have God will faith. They have even if faith. Even if God doesn't deliver us out of this particular situation, we will still trust in Him. Brian Chapel, a pastor and author commenting on this, says, Scripture does directs us to do God's will and then to trust Him to take care of the outcome. This is precisely what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. They did not pretend to know what would happen to them. They had no desire to be burned alive and no doubt prayed for deliverance. Still, they recognized their chief duty was obedience, not figuring out what God would do next. And what happens next is King Neb throws them in the furnace. Now, if you are familiar with this story, um, forget for a moment how this story ends. Um, these three have no idea what will happen to them. As far as they know, this is the end. This is it. After everything they've been through, endured, survived, after all the prayer, after all the faithfulness, the courage, after all the pain, the heartache, this is their reward, burning alive in a furnace in Babylon, thousands of miles from home. And for many Christians throughout history and throughout the world today, this is where the story ends. This is where they are burned at the stake. This is where they're executed by ISIS. This is where they don't recover from cancer. This is where they lose their job and their well-being because of their faith commitment, even if faith is costly. And we are not used to this in this country. We live in the most successful nation in the world. We are bred into believing that everything is going to end well for us. I think about our movies or our stories. They so often end happily. Uh, If you look at at movies and and films from other countries, it's often not the case. When I I remember reading uh, the sixth Harry Potter book for the first time, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. I was reading the sixth book for the first time, didn't know it was going to happen. I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't read it or seen the movies, but I will say it's not the happiest ending. And I finished that book, I was literally angry for a week. I could not handle it. We do not know what to do without happy endings. But these three men are ready for it. They have even-if faith. And the question for you and me this morning is, what in your life can you say even-if to? What's your even-if? Even if this is taken away from me, I still can trust that God is in control. What in your life can you not say even-if to? What may be too costly? What might you need to surrender to God's control? So, even if faith is offensive, it's costly, and lastly, even if faith is realistic, it's realistic, what does that mean? Well, let's return to the narrative and and wrap it up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are tied up and thrown right into the furnace. So, this wasn't just kind of any furnace. This is probably the same furnace that was used to form this 90-foot golden idol. This is huge and unnaturally hot. It was something uh, like in this picture. Uh, This is the kind of furnace they're they're thrown into. It's probably bigger than this um, with the size of the idol. This thing is not meant for humans. Uh, It's meant for melting and liquidating metal, And they are thrown right into it. So King Neb pulls up a chair, gets some popcorn and a soda, watches the show. These punks are going to get what they had coming to them. But then in verse 24, it says this, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. I've always pictured this moment as that moment in a scary movie when there's a big uh, scary monster right behind the protagonist and they're looking at their friend and they say, There's something big and hairy behind me, isn't there? And their friend says, Yeah. And they turn around and they're scared. This is sort of what's going on. King Neb is like, We threw three men in there, didn't we? His friends say, yeah. He said, but there's a fourth man in there, and they all seem to be okay. What's happening? So, in verse 26, it says, then King Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors, in other words, all the officials that King Neb thought he was gathering to worship his idol. Instead, they gathered together and see that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire, even, had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered, and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. God saves them from the furnace, and King Neb ends up worshiping him. Once again, God displays that he is in control not some politician, no matter how powerful they may be. But if the story had not ended this way, would we still say that God is in control? If these three men had died, and that's how Daniel 3 ended, would it still be true that God is in control? Like we said, this is where the story ends for so many. It's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thought it would end, You see, there, even if faith is realistic, this kind of faith is realistic, this kind of faith acknowledges that, yes, there's an all-powerful king who has power over us and will throw us into this furnace, we see that, but this kind of faith also knows that God is the one who is truly in control, that He has the ability to save in every situation and whether He does or even if He doesn't. This faith recognizes that it's He who is in control. Even if faith sees the furnace, but it sees more than the furnace, it also sees the God who is in control of all things. If you have even if faith, you see reality in a different way. You can see more of reality. You can see, yes, the furnace, you're realistic. You can see your bad grades. You can see your broken marriage. You can see your financial issues. You can see your addicted family member. You can see the election that we are in. But that's not all that you see. You also see the God who is in control, who is ruler over the entire earth and the entire heaven, the God who is truly all-powerful, and the God who loves you. True faith, even if level faith is not a vague hope that what's to come will somehow turn out for the good, even though my hands are tied and I don't have control over it. Instead, it is a settled confidence in in the God whose hands you are in, come what may. It's not faith in a future, but trust in a person. Howard Thurman who is a theologian and pastor, wrote in response to the threat of violence he faced as a black man in the 1940s. He wrote this, God cares for the grass of the field, which lives a day and is no more, and the sparrow that falls unnoticed by the wayside. He sees the smallest things. He also holds the stars in their appointed places, leaves his mark in every living thing, and he cares for me. To be assured of this becomes the answer to the threat of violence, yea, to violence itself. To the degree to which a man knows this, he is unconquerable from within and without. To the degree to which you trust in the God who is in control of the smallest intricacies of life and the largest cosmic forces of the universe and simultaneously is holding you in His loving hands, to the degree to which, in other words, you see true reality, you'll be able to live life without control. You'll be able to be the kind of person who is not dominated by circumstance but dominated by a trust in Him, even if faith is realistic. So how do we get this kind of faith? That sounds like stuff for special holy people, Anthony. You expect me to have this kind of faith? Well, in in one sense, no. You and I don't have a chance if we just rely on willpower and just try harder to believe. We can't just try to have this faith, but we can train to have this kind of a faith. We can, over time, by God's grace and through certain practices, grow into the kind of people who have even if faith. Just don't expect it to be overnight. So, a a few practical suggestions here help us grow into this kind of faith. These are quick Uh, three quick ones. These are not by any means exhaustive or necessary, just some possible places to begin. First, place each day in God's hands. Every morning, maybe before you get out of bed or when you're brushing your teeth, place the day in God's hands. Pray and entrust all the day's events into His care. Acknowledge that everything that happens to you that day whatever it is, is either sent by God or permitted by God, that He is in control. Commit and trust the day to Him in the morning. Over time, that takes root in who we are. Second, something I've been trying out for the past maybe month or so that I've I've found helpful is spending time each day just sitting in God's presence. Spend time with Him. I spend maybe five minutes, maybe less. For me, it's one of the first things I do when I get home in the evening from the office, but maybe for you it's during lunch or before you go to bed. Sit and direct your mind Godward. Be open and aware of His presence in the room with you. Remind yourself of His love for you. Ask Him to help you more fully comprehend and grasp His love and care for you and and sit and listen. Again, maybe five minutes, sometimes less, but it becomes part of your rhythm. The reality of God's presence becomes a regular part of your life. Practice the presence of God. Finally, have even if faith in the little things. Don't worry about how you would respond if you were at the furnace have even if faith where you are already. Be faithful even if it means you have to take a nap when you don't want to, for example. Practice faith in the little things. As you do so, you'll grow. You'll get stronger over time. And God gives sufficient grace for each situation. To be able to live life without control, you and I need even if Faith. Even if faith is offensive, you get, may get on people's nerves. It's costly, you may be thrown into a furnace, but it's also re- realistic. By faith, we know that the God who is with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the same God who is profoundly with us today. The God who entered the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the same God who enters the furnace with you and me today. And 2,000 years ago, He entered the furnace of this sinful world. He lived among us. He suffered like us. He died for us. and He entered the furnace of the wrath of God on the cross. He took upon Himself our sin, and by His grace, through faith, He forgives He delivers you from death, the ultimate furnace, and He invites you to life with Him. He is the epitome of the one who lived with even if faith, and with life in Him as we learn from Him, even if you face furnaces, He is with you, and He is in control. Put your trust in Him, even if. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for entering the furnace with us. That you do not tell us only to go through the furnace, but that you enter it with us. Lord, thank you for loving us and caring for us and for being with us. We ask that you would increase our faith, that you would increase our sight, that you would give us even if faith, and that we may live even in a world that may be out of control, with a settled confidence in you as the one who is truly in control. Amen.